Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. We are here to experiment and to learn. And if that is the purpose, then we have to constantly evolve to our own best version. Now, you could call that you know, changing, you can call that evolving, you can call it a natural process. And when we don't, I think we we lose our creativity, we lose our, uh, uh, our momentum, we lose our place in the world, and we lose our purpose in the world, uh, whatever that is. And it's unique for everybody and it's different. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. 
Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community. And that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Sid, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I came across your story by way of um, your publicist, Rob, who has been sending me lots of books and also lots of amazing guests. And when he told me a little bit about what you did and and I got to um, dig through your book, I was very intrigued. So I want to start with a question um, just from having read the beginning of your book uh, that I I was really curious about. And that is, what did your parents do for a living? And how did that end up impacting the choices that you've made with your life and your career? Excellent question. Excellent question. So uh, my uh, dad started off uh, uh, as uh, uh, as a as a as a guy at the bank. He started working at a bank, but he had this entrepreneurial spirit. And actually, the story uh, about him coming to uh, you know to to Tehran, which is I'm, I'm I was born in Iran, uh, is an interesting one. It had some influence on my life as well. So he came from Shiraz, which is a town uh, in the southern part of uh, Iran, to Tehran uh, with his dad when he was about seven years old or so. And on the way to Tehran, he asked my, uh, my grandfather, why are we going to Tehran? And my grandfather's comment was uh, uh, that in small water, and it's a saying in, in, in Farsi, it says, in small water, small fish will grow. In big water, big fish will grow. And I like my kids to be big fish. Hmm. So uh, he had that, you know, that kind of mentality and entrepreneurship. He started, I think I talk in the book about a story about him and, and, uh, and his brother starting a store that failed miserably. Uh, but he had the entrepreneurial spirit, uh, and at the same time, you know, he, he wanted a stable life. Uh, so he joined a bank, and he moved up pretty much and became uh, one of the top three executives in a major bank in Iran. Uh, and after he retired at around 50, uh, he really began a consulting career working with a number of uh, leading companies, global companies, and so forth, uh, as an advisor. Uh, my mom uh, was also one of the few uh, women who started working in Iran at a very early stage 
uh, and uh, was educated and fascinated with with news. I would say she would read four or five hours of news and uh, you know stuff every day. Um, and that's uh, you know that that's kind of the, the the upbringing. I came to the U.S. around uh, when I was sixteen, and my parents were uh, adamantly against it um, because I was doing well at school, and it wasn't uh, and there was no revolution or anything in Iran that would uh, cause me to want to get out. Uh, but I uh, I had a, a kind of a desire, so I went out and got my passport, but it just needed their, their, their signature. I applied to a school and got accepted, uh, but they wouldn't agree. So I went to my great uncle and, uh, and, and kind of talked to him about why I want to go. And he said, why do you want to go? And I said, well, in small waters, small fish would grow. And he says, okay, don't, I, I got it. So that was the argument with my father, and uh, and that's how I got here. Wow. Okay. You know, I have so many questions um, about sort of even growing up in the Middle East, and you know, I'm curious what sort of misperceptions that you think you know Americans or, or people you know outside uh, in the Western world have of the Middle East, just based on what we see in the media and what we see in the news. Um, because this is just out of personal curiosity. Like literally, almost everything I think I know about the Middle East has come from anything I've seen on CNN. So I'm sure it's not entirely accurate. <laughs> it's not accurate at all. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, so uh, you know, if you if you canvass the the people and forget about the uh, um, the regimes, uh, you have extremely smart people with great ambition, like everywhere else in the world. I would say people want to. Uh, if you ask anybody on the face of the earth, uh, and you say, "What do you want to be?" They want to be happy. Uh-huh. Uh, it's that definition of happiness that may change from place to place. Some want to be wealthy. Some want to have a great family. Uh, but people are pretty much the same around the world. And if you go and, and dig into religions for a while, by the way, I used to teach philosophy in, in my earlier earlier days. And I, I did read most of religions and most of Eastern philosophies and so forth. And most of philosophy that are non-classical, uh, you know, religion-based uh, philosophers. And what I found was, you know, the foundation of all of them are pretty much the same. And, and if you go back to people, they have the same basic desire. It is uh, the divisiveness of, of regimes and, and groups that are trying to take advantage of, uh, of people because they're, you know, illiterate or uh, because, uh, uh, you know, because they use religion or they use other means to, you know, to kind of uh, manipulate them. Uh, which uh, which creates these uh, pockets of you know, terrorists or pockets of uh, you know uh, divisiveness. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, corruption is pretty big in uh, in most of Middle East. Uh, and one of the things that I always say is that uh, although you see all these arguments about like Israelis and Palestinians or Iranians and uh, and, and, and Arabs and so forth. Part of the problem is because they like to negotiate and they speak the same thing. Uh, you know, like if you if you like, uh, you know, Palestine and Israel, they're two feet apart. So <laughs> they come from the same background. They they buy stuff at the same place. They do the same stuff. So it's not that they're that different. It's just that somehow the divisiveness that uh, our environments, our politics, or 
or folks within religion who want to manipulate people um, are, are are creating those uh, those divisions. And it is uh, it's not uh, you know great news uh, for from CNN or Fox or whoever it's saying. They're saying, well, all is good. People are getting along. Mm. That's that, that's not news. Right. Uh, and uh, and when I say you know religious leaders, it's not that all religion are bad. I actually think it's a very good thing to have some foundational uh, pillars in, in in what you do and in your life. It's just like anything else. I could be uh, running a company and I could be crooked and trying to take advantage of people. Uh, the only difference is when I get into a bigger positions of power, particularly with religion, I have the ability to manipulate people at an entirely different level. You know, I use God as my witness, essentially. Mm. And there's no higher power. So uh, basically, I, I, I see uh, people are pretty much the same. They have the same desires, uh, but their environments uh, drives them to behave differently. Uh, and, uh, and it's those differences and those, you know, uh, kind of agendas that uh, that creates the mayhem. And mayhem is something that that is newsworthy, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. You know, one of the things that's really interesting to me um, is, you know, and I'd never thought about it this way until you know you told me the story about you coming to the United States. So, you know, immigrants for the most part take huge risks in leaving their countries to come to the United States and to build a certain life. And there's, you know, that that in and of itself is a very entrepreneurial thing to do. But I don't know if you've noticed this, and, and maybe you had the experience with your parents, but with Indian parents, the, the strange sort of paradoxical byproduct of that is that they discourage risk in their own children. Yes. And I'm curious, what I just want to hear what you have to say about this. Well, it is true. If you look at the uh, Indian parents or even the Chinese or, or, or Persians, uh, we are thought to be engineers and doctors and lawyers, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Because those are safe positions, essentially. Uh-huh. Uh, the assumption is if you're a doctor, regardless of where you are and how the economy is, you're doing well. Uh, the same thing with engineers. And, you know, in the in the old days, obviously, in those developing countries, engineers had a different level of respect. So, uh, uh, so those are pretty much risk-averse situations that they want to put the kids in. Uh, the uh, the fact is, though, that most of people outside of U.S. look at U.S. as this uh, you know place, which is truly you could you could come in and if you have the uh, you know if you have the uh, the intelligence and you work hard, um, you'll get someplace and you could make it. Uh, I mean, look around you. How many how many CEOs of great companies such as Microsoft and others are Indians? Mm-hmm. Uh, I understand the Persians control over four hundred billion dollars of assets. Uh, I mean, just just look around. And I think that the, one of the reasons uh, is is this desire uh, to kind of get ahead and and uh, and do better. Uh, and if, if you look at it, a lot of them have actually used those engineering degrees uh, to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's kind of a dichotomy that the same thing that was the safe place has really uh, propelled, particularly in this day and age, uh, a lot of the folks to use that that kind of a base as the jumping uh, you know, place. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so it is it is a dichotomy, but I think uh, uh, the the desire to be uh, living a better life um, is is overcoming the fear essentially. So with, with all this being the case, um, I'm curious kind of, you know, from the perspective, you know, as somebody who's been an investor, as somebody who's been involved in multiple companies and also sort of seeing where we're headed, I mean, in your mind, you know, what do the, the future of education and the future of work look like and, and how do we prepare for it in a way that, you know, ensures that we're actually going to be okay? <laughs> so I am, and actually I talk about this in my book towards the last chapter, and, and then there's another idea that didn't make it to the book, and, and I talked to some folks and said, oh, well, that's a great thing for the next book. <laughs> uh, so let me let me talk about this fear that in, in terms of education first and in terms of where we're headed. Uh, we uh, are, are now being bombarded with this fear of artificial intelligence and robotics and uh, you know, the knowledge workers are, you know, lots of different reports, anywhere from 100 million people to, uh, you know, to more or less are going to be out of work by the next five or 10 years uh, because robots are going to take over. Uh, and uh, so the workplace is going to be considerably different. Uh, what I propose is if we, is it because we wanted that life? that we as people, as humanity, as a, as a race, we are creating those things. We, we are doing those in order to reduce the computational or taxation on our brain and get ready for the next evolution, which is going to be more around creativity and less around who is better because uh, as an attorney, they can process data better or they're faster in adding in math. Mm-hmm. So we are really extending our capabilities, and I use the analogy of you know if you really want to look at it, when when humans came up with uh, I don't know getting a, a knife, they could have avoided that and just you know just use their teeth, but they came up with a knife because it made their life easier. We now are at a different place. We have evolved from a physical nature, and we need to evolve from a mental perspective. And that requires us to kind of get rid of some of the computational tasks and create things that would help us do that. So I believe that we have to embrace it, uh, embrace the, the, the artificial intelligence, not necessarily be afraid of this uh, notion of, uh, uh, you know, the machines are gonna replace us, the machines are gonna eliminate us, uh, and, and embrace it as a race with this notion that it would help us get to the next place. Um, so now if you t- look at the, um, the fundamentals of education, I think there's a lot of stuff and I look at a lot of deals and companies that work with a lot of uh, big and small entities. I think there's phenomenal things going on. And I think there's one uh, fundamental thing and this is the, the thing I was saying it could be, uh, you know, people are saying it should be in the next book. Uh, is this notion of what we teach our students. We teach our students to solve problems. You know, look at engineering classes. We now do the same thing with cases uh, and so forth in the MBA uh, programs. We teach them to solve problems. But leadership, creativity, and innovation is really in finding the problems. It's not in solving the problems. That means... We, when we go and work for a company at an MBA, we trust somebody else in the chain 
our managers, the leaders, the CEO to say, ah, that is the problem. Joe, we need to solve that problem. Let's apply analytics or let's apply whatever tools or capabilities we want to solve that problem. So the, the generation that we create is a problem solver, not a problem finder. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So that, uh, I think w- the, the next generation, we have to figure out a way that we will teach them how to find the problems, the right problems, hmm. as opposed to just being problem solvers, which is a pretty, you know, it's, it's a different way of looking at the problem. Yeah, no doubt. You know, it, it's funny you say that because my, my business partner, Brian, said, he said, have you noticed that school teaches people year after year to solve the same stupid problem that has already been solved? He said the ninth grader who's in algebra this year will solve the same problem that the ninth grader who's in algebra next year solves. You got that exactly right. You got that exactly right. And they and they saw and we, we are teaching them how to solve problems before we get them into the workforce. Mm-hmm. But we never teach them how to find the problem. <laughs> Right. Which seems like it's going to be essential for the future. Yeah, uh, it, it is going to be essential for the future because with all these advent of big data, all these avenues of gaining insight and discovering new things, uh, in order to be innovative, you have to look in the darkness, uh, in the unknown. I, I, you know, I, I use the analogy of it has to be in the, uh, uh, you know, in, in the in, in the in the ignorance mm-hmm. that you find new things. Because facts only get you to other facts. Facts can help you improve things, but not innovate and discover new things. Hmm. Uh, but you know the advent of all these technology thing and, and, and capabilities that's now being uh, being offered to us allows us to look at a lot more intelligence, gain a lot more intelligence, and those things will point to potential new problems, new value propositions, new innovations. So we have to be trained to be able to find those things. Hmm. So you've spent time um, as a an educator. Um, so I, I have to ask, you know, in your perspective, do you think that education in its current form can continue? Because I, I think, I mean, like, there's no no doubt in my mind, I, I've had a lot of criticisms of the system because I jokingly say I'm a failed byproduct of the system. And we've had a lot of professors here. So, you know, I have the utmost respect for our educators. I think the <laughs> system is incredibly flawed um, because, it, one, it, it riddles people with debt, uh, which I, I think is a problem. Uh, you know, it actually stifles opportunities. I'm curious, you know, from the perspective of somebody who has spent time in the system, what do you think needs to happen in order to change it so that it leads to its intended outcomes? Um, It is a very problematic system, and and it is for a number of reasons. Uh, One is uh, it is victim to political beliefs. Uh, So one group feels, well, we, we just have to be uh, uh, we have to provide that as a right. So you don't go on debt, you don't go in debt, and you don't, you know, and, and students wouldn't uh, wouldn't have a problem. The other one says, well, it's something, it's not a right. If you want it, you got to pay for it. The counter argument is, well, if I don't pay for it and many others don't pay for it, then we have a country that is uneducated. So we fall behind. 
So it's kind of a circular motion, if you would, that, that we're stuck in. If you look at the early stage, uh, you know, K-12 kind of situation, uh, teachers are not being paid well. And, uh, and a lot of good entrepreneurial, uh, smart people don't really want to go to K-12 because it, it just doesn't make any money. Uh, they, they have a safe life, maybe, and that's true. This, uh, uh, you know, you can't, you can't get rid of them. And, you know, there are other, you know, um, situations where uh, you're, you're kind of, uh, you know, when you go into the system, it's hard to get rid of you because you can't get rid of teachers, essentially. It's, it's this tenure uh, idea. And the same thing applies in colleges when, when, when professors get to be tenured. Uh, it's essentially a job for life. So, you you know, they stop kind of uh, growing and, uh, you know, they get into this routine, uh, the same same book, same same documents. They show up every, you know, Monday or Tuesday and show, you know, uh, kind of offer the same course. Uh, and what happens is after a while, those are stale. But, you know, you've got the situation. So the 10-year program has to, we have to re-examine that. Uh, it is no job is a right for anybody. <laughs> so that's that's one, the 10 year program. The second thing is we have to get over this notion that if it's a right or not a right. Uh, and is it really money that should be uh, exchanged for the education uh, or is it some sort of service, which is money, essentially mm -hmm. time is money. Um, and, um, and, 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 you know, the other thing that I think difficult is, is this notion that we don't have a consistent policy, uh, over time. So every administration that comes in have their own, uh, ideas, they come in, they do it for a few years and before it really gets into any, uh, any results, uh, well now it's the testing that's important. Well now testing is not important. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing is a social issue, I think. Now, am I giving you enough problems to solve? <laughs> the, the other thing is a social issue. If you look at how we raise our kids these days, if you even come you know, 13th out of 13th teams in a soccer game, you get an award. Why? So we teach our children that it's okay to be incompetent, not to win. Like to get ahead. And this generation, and the idea is let's get them through the system, let's get them out, and yeah, they have, a, they, they have a degree. But when they get into the workplace, it's a different world. You're expected to perform. Nobody likes the person who's the number 13th. So it's the social effect of what we're doing, uh, the, you know, the way that we've structured this 10 years, and uh, and obviously this uh, flip flopping on on strategy, uh, they're all contributing to this, uh, you know, to this confusion. Uh, I think if we agree on at least one or two of these pillars, the system would begin to change. So if you get rid of the the ten years, you begin to pay you know teachers better uh, in some form, uh, then you would get a better outcome. And that would change uh, in, in some form. Uh, if we adopt a policy that we can continue over time, that would change, <laughs> change the situation. So change has to happen from one angle, like any other change. You've you got to move the ball from some one direction. Mm -hmm. And then it's moving. Now, 
you know, like in a soccer game, if you if you kick the ball, at least you're in play. But we just pass the ball in a very small circle, and it's really not going towards the goal. It's just it's just going the same circle, you know, behind behind the uh, you know uh, behind the you know midpoint to midfield, if you. Will. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Hmm. Wow. Um, well, you know, what I'd like to do is, is have you walk us through sort of the trajectory of your career and how it has led to you doing the work that you're doing today. 
um, you know, what the significant inflection points were. And also, I'm curious how philosophy has informed the decisions you've made, um, you know, in your business career. Um, I would say philosophy has uh, informed it quite a bit. Uh, uh, I, I think, uh, let me let me give you a little bit of background of, uh, of, of where I started. And uh, I have a friend uh, who... Uh, told me a while back. He said, "Sid, I don't know you. You kind of gracefully go from one thing to another. Uh, that's the way she described it in, in terms of change. And I really didn't appreciate that uh, until recently. And it's not. I, I wouldn't say it's not graceful. It is purposeful. And because it's purposeful, it appears to be graceful. <laughs> Meaning." <laughs> Uh, meaning that I, I do go through evaluating what I'm doing and, and kind of, uh, you know, at times hesitating, at times, you know, pivoting, at times going with the probability and shifting and switching until I find, you know, that 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 place that I think it's uh, it's a reasonably good plateau. And I do expect to change again. So I've, if you look at my history, I started my first company when I was 21. Then, um, then I joined after that a, a consulting firm when uh, when I exited that, and it was a small consulting firm, six people. We built it to about 250, 300 people uh, nationwide, and I became their partner. And when I got there, I really felt, wait a minute, you know, this is like I was 26, 27 years old. And I said, you know, these guys over there are making a lot of money through this equity deals. Those that those were the days of leverage buyouts. Why it doesn't make sense for me to work all these hours, and I was working hundred hour weeks, so that kind of triggered this notion that there is a better place, there is a transition that needs to happen, and then I started my own company and I did turnaround work for a while, and then I became, uh, and initially I didn't have the money, so I had you know syndicated deals and I'll get other people's money, and along the way. I was bamboozled a few times and I failed at a couple and I succeeded at a couple more. Um, and in that period, I also started kind of becoming the principal investor after a while because, you know, that was uh, that was more lucrative and I had more control. Mm -hmm. uh, then I began to essentially uh, kind of start companies. And it, 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 it happened with um, one day I had a client. It was a court. Um, the Riverside County Courts, um, and we had done some work with the courts with a partner that I had uh, out of uh, out of Pittsburgh. We had an office in Pittsburgh at that time. Uh, I had done a lot of work uh, with the courts, and we would go in and essentially would look at uh, their operations almost every year, and we'll say, hey, "Here's the budgeting requirements," and then they will use our report. Uh, which was pretty rigorous about what's what are the needs and blah blah blah, and then they'll go secure the budget with the state, and we'll do this with a lot of different uh, a lot of different courts. And one day I was meeting with a guy named Mike, uh, who was the CEO of, of the Riverside Courts, and I said, Mike, you know, you do, we're doing this for you every every year. I love the money, but I think there's a better way of doing this. You know, if we have a software program and we call it a reengineering software program, you could see what your workload is, where you need it, and you could basically assign the right people to the right time. And if your workload is going up, you can clearly see you need more people. And it's very quantitative. You could take it to the state and say, see, we need more people. <laughs> um, and it's an ongoing thing. And you could start 
doing it. And uh, I said, oh, that's a great idea. Uh, I said, okay, what we could do is do an RFP and hire a software programmer or a team to do this for you. And he said, no, 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 I don't want you to do that. You just go do it. I said, but, I said, no, but, go do it. So we came out, I called my partner, I said, I guess we're in the software business. So, <laughs> so we hired a, a couple of, you know, a couple of software people. Uh, and we did this and um, and we won the uh, the California CLEPS Award, Innovation Award in Government. Uh, and they're now, I think, uh, I, I sold that company, but I think there were like 96 courts on it or something, which was the first process re-engineering idea of software ever developed. Uh, my partner used to kid around and say, well, you have a tendency of taking off the plane without having built the landing gears. <laughs> uh, and he's right. So I've, I've done that in, in my life. So uh, that kind of ended up being in a position of building now companies, <laughs> this early stage stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I had an interesting experience in the 2000s with a company called Competitive Knowledge. And we actually... Uh, we're one of the first people that uh, coined the phrase of executive dashboard. Um, and before, you know, most of the big companies now, it's a pretty, you know, well-known uh, phrase that people use, executive dashboard that displays information. Um, and, uh, and basically, uh, create a company called Competitive Knowledge, very early stages in the Internet. And the idea was to aggregate data and create benchmarks across an industry, which is now a lot of companies are trying to do, but we were ahead of our time. Uh, and uh, we did get some venture funding. That was the first time that uh, we actually, you know, I actually went uh, you know, to the venture community. Uh, and it, uh, it flat, uh, uh, you know, it failed in the 2000 because um, I just didn't see it, you know, working. And I was the major, uh, major investor and the major shareholder. Uh, and I shared with my uh, my board that I just don't think it would work. And I actually wrote a check back to some of them, which was unheard of in those days. You know, every CEO was trying to push through it. So it's the failures as well as the uh, uh, as well as the successes that that helps you kind of shape things. And I think it's the failures uh, that help you. Uh, really learn. You know, there's a phrase in, in Silicon Valley that people say, oh, fail, often fail fast. I don't know if you've heard that. Mm -hmm. I think it's not fail, often fail fast. It's learn often, <laughs> learn fast. So the focus is not on the failing. The focus is on the learning. Uh, so you see a lot of, you know, uh, because failure is also toxic in big companies, although, you know, everybody you know provides lip service around it. Because it's the, because we focus on the failure, if focus, what did we learn from that activity that we did? If you're talking about experimentation or innovation, what did we do to learn something out of it? And that essentially, I think, is something that has its roots, going back to your question, in, in, in the world of philosophy and in the world of we are here to experiment and to learn. And if that is the purpose then we have to constantly evolve to our own best version. Now, you could call that, you know, changing. You can call that evolving. You could call it a natural process. And when we don't, I think we we lose our creativity. We lose our, uh, uh, our momentum. We lose our place in the world. And we lose our purpose in the world. Uh, whatever that is. And it's unique for everybody and it's different. 
Um, so if you look at that you know, process, essentially after that I did, um, uh, we you know, bought a company, uh, a car lot with a couple of, uh, couple of people uh, and uh, basically took that and we increased the, uh, uh, the revenue by about 30 fold in uh, about two and a half years, three years, short of three years, which was phenomenal in terms of strategy, but it was fundamentally around using data using analytics, getting to an inside and getting ahead of the competition. Uh, and then I became an angel investor, which was a phenomenal time because I learned a lot from a lot of, uh, a lot of entrepreneurs. I would look at maybe around 12, 1500 businesses a year uh, as I was the president of the Tech Coast Angels in Orange County. And uh, I had lots of conversations uh, around various business model, what works, what didn't. And that kind of, I think, was a really a, a few years of tremendous amount of knowledge from real life experiences. Hmm. Uh, and I joined KPMG uh, about five years ago as a result of uh, one of my companies that was sold to, to KPMG, which was around data analytics and unstructured data analytics, getting, getting insight out of that. Wow. So lots of questions come from that. Um, so one of the things that, I, that I'm most curious about when I when I speak to people who have invested in a lot of companies is what are the common sort of characteristics that you have seen in the people that you've invested in that have been wildly successful? I hate the word uh, uh, coachability. <laughs> I, I absolutely do because, you know, it's just... But uh, there, is, there is something to it. It's if the... The uh, the entrepreneur uh, believes that what they're getting and selects, you know, purposely goes after those. What they're getting from an investor is really beyond the money. It's not the money that solves the problem. So, if the if the entrepreneur believes that if you get more intelligence around the table you get more connections and networks around the table, you would have a better product at the end, as opposed to, I know what I'm doing, you just give me the money and shut up. Most of those guys that say, give me the money and shut up, are people that haven't gone through the sequences. So, so they waste time and they waste the money. Mm-hmm. So you know, a lot of times when you know people ask me to be on the board of a company, you know, the first thing I tell them is, uh, here's the thing, you guys, uh, you know, let's say I'm, I live in Orange County, which is about an hour and a half, an hour away from, from Los Angeles, and it's always filled with traffic. I'll say, <laughs> I have traveled this road many, many times. I know what time to leave, and I know where the traffic jams happen, and I usually know which exits I should get out of and when to get back. And that does two things for me. One is I'll get there faster while you're sitting in traffic. And the second is I don't spend the fuel as much. So that's kind of like time and money, money being the venture or the investments that goes in. And the time is whoever gets there first has an advantage from a business perspective. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, if you want to go and try this out and learn how where to get in and where to get out and what to do yourself, that means you're wasting your time and we're wasting the energy and the money. Hmm. So I think the entrepreneurs that have that quality of understanding uh, 
hey, this idiot, <laughs> the investor, has paid a lot of money to learn this. And maybe I can stand on his shoulder to get to the next day. So that's that's one uh, thing. The second thing, I have never, and, and some people may have, I have never seen, I have never been involved with a company that based on the first business model, they went all the way to an exit. Wow. It has evolved multiple times, changed multiple times. And there is a disease I call the founderitis disease. And the founderitis disease is somebody had come up with an idea and they think this is the greatest idea since sliced bread and therefore it should be maintained as it was originally conceived, although the market isn't responding. So they fall in love with their own ideas and they don't evolve. The good guys, the ones that are successful, evolve multiple times. They change the idea because, hey, no idea is perfect at inception. And because the world is changing, consumer behavior is changing, others are innovating, competitors are in sleep, they're doing things too. You gotta evolve it until you really make some really headway. And that's what I call staying relevant. You gotta always evolve to stay relevant. Wow. So one other question for you. Um, how do you think about wealth and money after having, you know, um, sold multiple companies? Uh, has it changed your perspective on it? You know, because it, it just you know, I feel like every time I talk to somebody who has, has, you know, gotten to the point where money is no longer an issue in their life, you, know, you always hear the sort of cliche of, yeah, it doesn't solve all your problems. But, you know, I, I think my, my copywriter had a really good face. It's like, I'd rather be rich and miserable than poor and unhappy. Yeah. Um, so I'm just curious kind of how your perspective on all this changes um, with time? Well, the, the first thing is uh, not having money really sucks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it creates a lot of problems. Uh, you know, from, from your health to raising your kids to worrying all the time to getting horrible jobs to having to, uh, um, you know, uh, listen to your boss, say whatever they want. <laughs> you're, you're, you're kind of a subject, if you would. Uh, so I've always said, and uh, you know, I, I told this to my wife when we got married. I said, uh, how do I say this so that it's uh, it's airworthy? Uh, <laughs> let, me, let me find a phrase that's more. Uh, you've got to always have... Uh, this uh, maybe maybe screw you money would be a better way of putting it. Sure. You, you know, you, you got to have enough to, to not be subjected to others, that you have a choice. And if you choose to stay and do something, it's out of your choice. So what money does, essentially it provides you with choices. Uh, it's a broader range of choices. Uh, it allows you that if you're a creative person to be more creative, if, uh, if you're an analytical person to spend time there without fear of going hungry. Uh, so uh, as I said, being poor sucks. Now, having money can get to your head though. That's the problem. Uh, obviously nobody, uh, nobody can claim that if you're not worried about things, uh, it's a bad thing. It's a great thing to have money and be, be comfortable. Some people though get, uh, uh, get this, uh, and I've had, I, I have friends who are worth a couple hundred million bucks and I've seen them be extremely nervous because they'll say, what if I don't have it? 
if I lose it, what's going to happen? Well, man, how much can you eat? <laughs> how much do you need? So it has this danger of, as opposed to you driving it, it becomes the driver and you become the slave of it. Wow. Uh, and and that's and that again is a choice. That that is a that's an inflection point. That a because you have money, you think that your opinions are much better than others. <laughs> so your ego gets a little bit hefty, and you you start not listening. You start you know being uh, you start growing because you've got this opinion, and you think, hey, I did this and it worked, and therefore anything else that I do will work. So it's, uh, that's one. So ego starts becoming a problem in your learning uh, path. The second is this notion of you're, you're afraid of what if I don't have it? And, and that becomes, uh, I think, another weakness. Um, and, and you could see this in, in you know, just this trend. If you look at some of the, and I, I don't want to name names, but you could research them or your audience could research them. Some people who've had great successes at one business, they've made lots of money, and then they've done the second one or the third one as a serial entrepreneur, and the second or the third one has been miserable. Because they think that since they made money, now every decision they make is accurate mm. and right. Uh, so that happens, you know, if you look at their personal life, they begin to have issues with, you know, their, their kids and wives and so forth. There are people, obviously, that have a particular level of grace that uh, handle it and, and I think it's a personal thing of what the point of ego and what the point of fears are you know if you have nothing and you all of a sudden have a hundred thousand dollars a year job or make that much money then you may you may get there and somebody else may be uh, like a Warren Buffett and, uh, and and always learn and always be open to change and and not let it get to his head and there are not that many of those guys hmm. Wow. Um, so I think that makes a, a perfect segue to uh, let you talk a little bit about your book, because I realized I've just completely drilled, drilled you for all these these questions without letting you talk very much about the Caterpillar's Edge. Um, but I think that really makes sort of a nice segue to talk about the principles, you know, where it came from, what the idea is, and, and what the implications are for, for people who are listening. Yeah. So uh, if you look at the, uh, the background that I just described, uh, I have... Uh, I've been uh, the founder, I've been the early stage guy, I have worked in my early days with big companies as a consultant, uh, the IBMs and the Federal Reserve Banks of the world, uh, and then I had been in a turnaround business in middle size, and then the latest part of uh, uh, my life before I joined uh, KPMG as a 27 or so billion dollar company was focused on early stage companies, a man and a laptop and a lot of, you know, rapid company building and, and uh, new ideas and innovation. And the last part was really big company. So it was a circle back to a world that I had experienced when I was 25 or 26 years old, when I was started. And what I have seen is an amazing continuity of behavior. And what I mean is the way that people were managing, uh, strategizing, approaching uh, growth and company building is pretty much the same, follows the same principles as of 50, 60 years ago. We still 
train the MBAs the same way. We take a year, year and a half to process things and get some, you know, graphs and charts and take them to the boards and you know, very much the same stuff. Uh, at the same time, we have this notion of big data and there's a lot of hoopla around it. People say, oh, there's big data. Well, data has always been big. You know, I remember when I started my career, I had, you know, uh, these uh, spreadsheets that you would fill out by hand and there were 72 pages and it'll take us uh, a week or so to kind of calculate the numbers and you get to the last page and say, this doesn't make any sense. And you had to redo it. The data was big. It was big for us. So somebody came up with a DBase2 and then we would put the stuff in there and great, it would solve the problem. So we could comprehend the data. So that solved the problem essentially. Uh, then we got into, ah, oh, if we could do this, can we get our supply chain folks in there? Can we expand? And that needed technology to solve that big data problem again. And uh, people like Oracle and so forth came up with a relational database. Boom, we solved the problem. Uh, then came, you know, other things. Now it's the IoT and the Internet of Things and every object is being connected and generating data massively. The prob the issue is comprehension, essentially. So what I saw was that we're focusing a lot on the big data stuff and analytics and competing on analytics without really focusing on competing on analytically informed strategies. That means we've got to plan in a way that is different than what we did in the past. We've got to get rid of the addictions that we've had in terms of our, you know, here's the budgeting process. That's the way it works. Here's we want to do innovation. Okay, let's fit it within the budgeting process. Uh, it takes a year to do this. We've got to uh, we've got to act at these time frames. We have biases around. Oh, we're great. We're doing great. We've always been doing. It doesn't work in our business. Our team is incompetent. So those are all biases and orthodoxies that we come to the table. The if we focus on the comprehension of all of this new stuff, data that provides new knowledge, and we combine the two, and we believe that the organization is a living entity, just like a human body, which means it can evolve and should evolve all the time, then there is a new way of approaching planning and building and competing. Uh, and so that became essentially uh, an outcome of what I had seen over the years that there is an addiction, there's this hoopla going on over here, but if we really change the way we view and uh, the world and, and, and planning and execution and, and doing things or shift our mind, that would lead to shifting our, or changing our actions and a different way of, uh, of competing. Uh, so, that's essentially where the book came out. I use the analogy of the butterfly because the butterfly and the caterpillar uh, are phenomenal examples of evolution. So a caterpillar changes or evolves multiple times. It has about 4,000 or so muscles, which is uh, four or five times uh, humans. And it manages to change all these muscles to go from one form to another and then completely become a different species. It does it incrementally, and it in that process, it deals with a lot of dangers, a lot of challenges. So I use that analogy, essentially, to build a lot of uh, uh, ideas, and I use personal stories in the book to kind of, <laughs> kind of drive uh, the ideas a little further or say, here's why I think this is the right way of doing it. Mm. Uh, and... Uh, 
What I found, though, interesting, frankly, originally this book, and this book has evolved about you know, 10 or 12 times before it got to what it, what it got. It was originally a very academic thing. It was hard to read. Um, but uh, if you've read the book, you could see that it's, uh, it's now a pretty fast read. Uh, what I found, though, is it was originally written for an audience of CEOs, uh, but I see a lot of younger folks uh, that are uh, striving to be leaders, they're managers, they like this change, they like to be a better version of themselves, uh, have also adopted the book and, and it, the book has resonated with them. So uh, when, I, when people now ask, who is the audience, I think the audience uh, of the book are those with an attitude for being a better unique self, uh, a unique version of themselves. Hmm. And that includes their company, that includes their life, that includes who they are. Because some of the concepts really truly applies to us as individuals as well. Wow. <clears throat> well, so this has been really, really amazing and incredibly insightful. So, um, I want to finish with my very last question, which is how we finish all our interviews with the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Authenticity. It is being the version that they are. That is make that that makes them unmistakable, and it makes them different from every every other thing. It makes them unique, uh, not because. And, and this doesn't authenticity doesn't mean that you are uh, you are your better version of yourself. That means is uh, uh, is Picasso authentic? Yeah, they are. Uh, is uh, Bill Gates? Is uh, uh, is uh, Steve Jobs? Uh, even uh, wherever you sit with your political uh, beliefs, is Donald Trump authentic? Yeah, no. Authentic that doesn't necessarily mean uh, truthful. Doesn't necessarily mean uh, doesn't necessarily mean that they are just or righteous or. Uh, but they are authentic in this in, in their own way, and that makes them unmistakable. Well, this has been uh, absolutely phenomenal. Uh, I really, really, I'm I'm glad Rob connected us. I've enjoyed our chat so much, and I I really appreciate Thanks. you taking the time to join us and share your stories I, with our listeners. I, 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 I hope it did the trick for you and uh, and <laughs> and it would be helpful to your audience. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. 
Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.